Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. Stages Podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Oh, it's autumn. It's sweater weather. And here in the Northeast, it is also time to start preparing for the stillness of winter. Some trees change color and shed leaves and carloads of leaf peepers put on their sweaters and head to the Northeast to bathe in its beauty. But the process of leaf shedding is so much more than just a tourist attraction. When a tree sheds, it conserves energy and strength. It pulls the nutrients from each leaf and then allows that leaf to fall away to the ground. Over time, it's covered in snow and creates fertile topsoil for new life. And just like the trees, it is the perfect time of year for all of us to let the things that no longer serve us fall away. I love that image, pulling wisdom from past experiences and then letting them fall away in order to grow new dreams. But letting go isn't easy. It's a practice like everything else. And sometimes we need a little help navigating that process. And this is where BetterHelp can help. BetterHelp offers customized online therapy, either on video or live phone chat sessions. It is very affordable and you can speak to someone within 48 hours. A good therapist can really help you pull wisdom from the past and let go with kindness and courage. I highly recommend. BetterHelp has a special offer for Sage's podcast listeners. You receive 10% off your first month with BetterHelp. So many of our listeners have taken advantage of this and we thank you because when you support BetterHelp, you support Sage's podcast all while supporting your own well-being. So just for today, put on a new sweater and then I want you to close your eyes. Pick one thing that you can learn and grow from. Watch it change color and fall away and then grow a new dream. Log on to BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, slash stages, and love where you are now. Thanks, BetterHelp. Oh my gosh, holy crap. Hi, Hello. James Bro. Oh my God, I'm in Hirschfeld's living room. You- <laughs> See, you went straight past the eyes, right to the artwork. That's all I, I need have- to know about you, James. My eyes are here. <laughs> oh, that I, I have, will say when I have I a room like I have a room like that too. You do? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not trying to show off. Well, maybe a little because you know you are you. But that is one of the first pieces. I saved a lot of money. I moved to New York, and it felt like the most actory, fancy thing that I could put on my wall when I was, I think, 29 is when I got it. And it's Tallulah Bankhead. Oh, it's not you. No, 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 no. Um, Sadly, he died before my Broadway debut. He died two years before. Yeah. So I don't have a Hirschfeld at all. That one's real. These are fake. I don't have a me. I know. I know. In 1984, I got a job to help pay for college. I just happened to land one of the best gigs in all of Boston. I was a waitress at Cheers, the original bar that the TV show was based on. And every now and then the cast and crew of Cheers would show up on our doorstep to film exteriors. And of course, the famous last show was live at the bar with Jay Leno's Tonight Show. And that was watched by 86 million people. Everyone in the cast and crew was fun and kind and down to earth. And the reason for that, I believe, is today's guest. He's quoted as saying, 
I believed that kindness is the most important currency you can trade in in business and in art. Today's guest is an 11-time Emmy Award-winning director with over 1,000 television episodes under his belt. He's directed Taxi, Cheers, Frasier, Friends, Will and Grace, and so many more iconic television shows. His new memoir, directed by James Burroughs, is out now, and it is a fantastic book. It's filled with memories of some of his favorite moments in television, and it's not only a manual for how to succeed in business. Do you see what I did there? Do you see what oh, I did? I saw. I because do. Because his I dad do. wrote that show. I did that. <laughs> but it's a manual for living a fulfilled life, having the courage to pursue what you love most, and then showing respect to it and to everyone attached to it. No one has had a more successful career in television. Please welcome Mr. James Burroughs. Can we have James Burroughs to stage, please? Mr. Burroughs, please come to stage. Thank wow. you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm so As happy. Are we. As a theater nerd, there were so many amazing antidotes in those first several chapters with your father and you being in different rehearsal spaces and writer's rooms. It was like, holy crap, almost after every page. It was a holy crap moment with <laughs> who you've been surrounded by, right? Yeah. yeah. I know. I'm uh, uh, One of my shows is on the wall at, uh, at Joe Allen's. Yeah. What's the Bre- flop? Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, right, right, right. You talk about that in the book. And then that yeah. was how you met Mary Tyler Moore. Mary Tyler Moore, yeah. First of all, I want to thank you because of I have a teenager. And as you raised teenagers, you know that you're always looking for ways to connect with them and, and, and share things with them. And I have shared so many of your shows with my son. We've sat and binged Taxi and Cheers and mm. Will and Grace. And so it's a really it's a it's a they're family friendly and they span kind of all age groups and bring people together. So I owe you a thank you for that. But the other interesting thing was when you agreed to come on our show, um, I was doing some research and I was watching you on Jimmy Kennel and my son came through and said, uh, you're interviewing him. And I said, yeah. And he goes, how'd you get him? And I said, I wrote him a letter just like he did to Mary Tallamore. So there is a, Aww. there you go. When you, when you want something, you do the work and then you ask. And so it was a great lesson to teach my teenager. And I thank wow. you for that as well. Do letters still happen? James, if someone were to write you like a hard letter, would you write them back similarly? Or is it kind of all email? Sondheim it's, used to write people letters. Yeah, It's, it's pretty much all email now. Uh, yeah. uh, Bob Newhart still sends me notes. Really? When, uh, yeah, when I read, he still writes, but it's very rare. It's very yeah. rare now. Email is quicker and, uh, you know, you get a, you, it's easier to do and you get a response quicker. And uh, it just is... Um, It's the currency now. And I too have to thank you because you have opened up so many conversations in my family's life as, as someone who I feel is progressive and I left my, uh, very stable and secure and Republican home when I was 18 and decided to branch out, head to New York city, but conversations sometimes were difficult and it was shows like will and grace that allowed us to have um, discussions about queer culture and make it palatable in a way that I could never find the language to really kind of broach some of these conversations with loved ones. And it was your art, your craft with these actors and these scripts that sort of allowed that bridge to, to be made. I'm sure, well, I can't speak to that, but what is the pride 
knowing that that legacy, that longevity has not only entertained us for so many generations, but has truly, truly formed a, a cultural understanding for race, for social issues. Uh, I never, uh, all my shows are, are shows that don't proselytize. And uh, I left that to Norman. Norman Lear was the king of that, the king mm -hmm. of political stuff, king of contemporary uh, uh, problems and bringing them up, uh, you know, Maud's abortion and uh, Archie being the way he was. So I've never, I was never uh, involved in those kind of shows. And when we started Will and Grace, the boys, Max and David, Cohen and Muchnick wrote a wonderful, wonderful script. And when I read it, I said, wow, here's a, sitcom where the some of the characters happened to be gay it had no agenda mm -hmm. there was no agenda about advancing or anything like that and and what it what happened was that um it was so funny that you got people to watch who wouldn't ordinarily watch mm -hmm. and uh they didn't object to the gayness uh they laughed at the gayness it made them more comfortable and mm -hmm. so the fact that it became paramount in the in the in the fight for gay rights and gay marriage was uh, a shock to me because we never set out to do that. We set out to do a funny show. And I always use this example about how the show exposed people who wouldn't ordinarily watch it to the gay world. Uh, I would drive carpool on Thursday during uh, the late 90s and the early 2000s when Will and Grace was on. And it was my daughter's eighth grade class. So they were 13, uh, 14 year olds. I would load the last person in. I, I, I think there were three in the car. And invariably on the Thursday, they would say to me, what's on Will and Grace tonight? Mm -hmm. So here were kids that were in the formative stage being informed by Will and Grace. And so I, I get uh, I get great knockers from that show. But uh, well, I, again, I. I and I'm sure the boys never set out to change the world. We interviewed a couple of guests, Marty Cummings-Gould and also Matt Doyle, and they both said that Will and Grace made their high school experience really wonderful. So it, instead of uh, feeling that they had to hide who they were or um, that they wouldn't be accepted for being who they were, Will and Grace and the character of Jack normalized it so that they had a fantastic high school experience because, because it was of, represented because TV. that TV yeah. show was so popular mm -hmm. and, and Jack was such a beloved character. Yeah. The, the great thing about that character is that if we didn't have Will in the show, mm -hmm. uh, we couldn't get away with Jack. Right. Mm -hmm. Or if we didn't have uh, uh, Grace, Deborah in the show, we couldn't get away with Karen. So right. it's uh, with a, Total balancing act. Um, yeah. And it was the same in Cheers. You couldn't have had Carla if you didn't have Diane because right. they were so they were such opposites. Well, if I can piggyback on that, you speak in your book about the different families that you create with a lot of these casts and that the central figure kind of needs to be almost the most stable and a, a reactor to all of the the circus that's going on around them. Are there certain archetypes that when you're creating a show that you need to make sure that they are representative so that those of us at home go, oh, I see myself in that character? I mean, there are stereotypical characters. I mean, the anal retentive, the the nerd, the uh, smart ass, you know, all those are inherent in, in uh, our, our characters that 
uh, that that um, uh, are appear in all sitcoms. It's just a different um, slant on them that you do. Mm-hmm. It's the different. It's the giving those people who are OCD or or mean a vulnerable point, so the audience can say, "Oh, I understand. I get it. Mm-hmm. I know a person like that." Mm-hmm. And sometimes they will see themselves and say, oh, wow, I don't want, I don't like that kind of person. And it sometimes evolves, it, it, it sometimes helps them, but it's the spin on the characters, you know, because most sitcoms have that stereotypical character. You have to have a, a, a center who is, uh, who is the windows into the show, Judd, Judd Hirsch on Taxi, Teddy, on Cheers, Kelsey on Frasier, on Friends, there's maybe two of them, mm-hmm. maybe Courtney and maybe Schwimmer. And uh, on, on Will of Grace, it was Eric. On Mike and Molly was Billy Gardell. So that's the, that's the person that the audience sees the show through. And if that person accepts the ramblings of the other characters like Teddy listening to Cliff on on ta- on on Cheers mm-hmm. and and listening to Cliff, the audience will listen and give some veracity to what Cliff is and mm-hmm. who he is. So it's 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 the spin on the characters, just like it is for me when when I read a pilot. The it's not uh, the pilots I read are not high concept. The you know maybe the highest concept show I ever did was Third Rock from the Sun, and. Uh, I think Will and Grace is probably a high concept show, but most of them are ordinary shows. Six people in a coffee house, nine people in a bar, seven people in a taxi garage. But it's how the show, how the idea is executed that makes it appealing and makes it palatable to an audience. And the audience's lens would be that central character right. you think what they no. see is what we should be seeing and feeling yeah well they lend credibility you know louis de palma was a horrible human being <laughs> he was a horrible human being. poor louis a poor yeah but people but you did poor. love him you, you found a way to him love him because judd would talk to him judd right. would talk to him one-on-one right and give and, him credibility and have compassion for him you yeah. would sort of dig in and find out why Louis was the way he was. And and you'd find compassion for Louis through Judd's right. character. And Danny's stature helped, you know, the same with Carla, mm-hmm. uh, Sam. You know, we have that great, wonderful moment in Cheers when Sam and Carla kiss. It's just a unexpected, wonderful moment. And uh, so that's that's the key to, you know, and on Seinfeld, you know, it was Jerry who was the eyes. And he, yes. you know, the other three are kind of off the wall a little bit, but Jerry gives them credibility and, and makes you identify with them and, and sympathize with them. Your casting was always so perfect. Oh my you gosh. know, when you look at your shows, you literally cannot imagine any other actor mm-hmm. in any, uh, any of those roles. And so what I'm wondering is when they came in, is there a... Is there a spark you were looking for? Was it you were waiting for the 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 whole ensemble to come together and then you just knew you had lightning in a bottle? What was it that you saw in them that you just knew that they would be perfect or that they would take a character and really form it into a whole being? Oh, well, you 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 look at a lot of people. 
I was there for uh, Danny DeVito's uh, um, audition for, for Taxi. And of course, when he walked in the room, everybody said, oh, my God. Mm. But, you know, there's also there's also a lot of luck involved that Danny was available at that point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I use this example of, of friends t- to say that casting, you know, you got to have an eye and, you know, you got to know if they can act and if they're funny. But there's also a lot of luck involved. In 1994, I had done four pilots and they sent me the script to friends. And I read it and I said to my agent, I have to do this pilot. I have to find time to do it. Oh, we worked out. I think I worked the weekend or something like that on uh, uh, one of the weekends. But those six people were available at the end of pilot season. Hmm. So they are perfect for those roles. And yet they were all available. Other shows passed on them. Right. Other right. shows didn't want them. The only, you know, Jen, Jen was in a, a show that was on CBS called Muddling Through a summer replacement that only lasted six episodes. So they got her, they got her to commit to uh, friends when that was over. But so there is a lot of luck. There's a lot of luck. You know, it's, uh, we, uh, we, um, on cheers, we, you know, Teddy was, I had seen Teddy audition for a show called best in the West. We read for the sheriff. He was not right for that, but he went in the back of my mind. And then Shelly, people have been trying to get Shelly for years, and she just sparked to the script. So the fact that she was not working then, and Teddy was free, and George was free, and Rats was free, and Nikki Colasano. So there's a lot of that. You know, there's a lot of that, but there's also you have to have a good eye, and they have to make you laugh in the room. And you read them three or four times. You read them for your for for the writers and the producers. Then you read them for the network. Then you read them for the studio, and if they and if they nail it each time, you know you got your person. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they nail it the first time, and they don't have any durability, and they mm-hmm. just forget mm-hmm. what was funny the first time. You know, I've been pretty lucky to have great casts. Uh, we spoke with a gentleman named Tom Noonan, and he was the president. Oh, yeah. of, uh, yes, okay. And we had asked, you know, because he was speaking about Crash and how many different um, studios and networks passed on Crash. Mm-hmm. And we said, now on the other side of that, is there a project or several projects that you look back now and go, I can't believe I completely missed the mastery of of that moment? And he said, yeah. So, uh, they came in. They pitched this series about a brother and a sister and them navigating their young lives between college and really making (laughs) their way in the world in New York City. And I thought, that just sounds like the most boring show I could ever think of. And sure enough, it was Friends. And the look on his face was really like, holy cow, did I miss it on that one? But Yeah, I mean, that goes on all the time. Uh, ABC passed on Cosby. Yeah. And Brandon bought it at NBC. And Brandon passed on Roseanne and ABC border. So it goes on all the time. The, the, the concept, you know, the French concept is six people talking in a coffee shop. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's what so, he said. He said yeah. hard pass. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have a series that you did the pilot to that it just didn't run and you always had it in the back of your mind and said, no, nah, you know, that could have worked if you just gave it a little more time or if you just had someone else in the role or did you ever have one of those where it lingers? Uh, I did a pilot uh, 
in the late seventies of the Goodbye Girl, the Neil Simon film. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. I did a pilot with uh, Karen Valentine and Michael Lembeck, who now has become a director, and it was a wonderful show. And uh, yeah. it got caught up in the business end, where ABC wanted only to do six and. Uh, Sony wanted 13, so it never got made. Mm. It never got made after the pilot. And then I did a show that I felt should have lasted longer called The Class, which was written by um, David Crane, who who created with Marta Friends, Mm -hmm. David Crane and his partner, Jeffrey Clarick. It was about um, a a reunion of a class. Uh, they, They have a reunion because Jason Ritter, who's the lead, wants them to meet his fiance. And it's all these people from a third grade class coming together. And it had uh, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, mm-hmm. Jason Ritter, David Keith, Lizzie Kaplan, mm-hmm. John Bernthal. And we made 18 shows on CBS and they kind of just let us drop. We got really good reviews and I don't know what happened. So I'm, I'm still sad about that moment. I know that you started out doing some theater and um, you were doing actually dinner theater here in Massachusetts, which is where I'm from. Oh, really? And yeah. And, and that's when you wrote that letter to Mary Tyler Moore and said, Hey, uh, can I come and work on your show in any capacity? And that sort of launched your TV career. And I know that you, you were a part of the um, live in front of a studio audience that, oh, when yeah. they, when they did that live on television, but do you miss the live, that 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 electricity and that live audience and that feel. And do you ever wish that maybe you could get back into theater? Uh, oh, I did a, I did uh, in nineteen ninety eight. I think mm-hmm. nineteen ninety eight. I did uh, the man who came to dinner at Steppenwolf with John Mahoney, ah. and uh, I, I had a great time doing that. Uh, they never asked me back, I guess, because nobody got shot and there was no blood in it. <laughs> so, uh, but. Um, you know, I've I've thought about it. I uh, but don't forget if I'm on a regular show every, whenever we shoot the show every Tuesday or every Friday, it's opening night. Yeah, right. And, right. You know, you have you have 300 people behind you, and you're nervous, and you got spilkies, and even even now I'm still nervous. But once the audience starts laughing, and it's a it's a on Will and Grace, it was a religious experience because the laughs mm-hmm. are so so big. Uh, I, I'll watch on Friends too, and Cheers. The last were on Cheers. The last were uh, big because you could go a couple of pages without a joke, mm-hmm. because we had twenty six minutes as opposed to twenty one minutes now, and and then when the joke came, it it was even more because uh, it's a um, huge release. It, yeah, huge release. Yeah. So. yeah, your cast for Will and Grace—they're all theatrical actors or they've at least taken real star turns on, on Broadway. So Mm -hmm. that's a language and a pace and a a musicality that once you find, you know, four theater actors that can find that. And that's, that's the beauty of Will and Grace and imagery that you gave me when reading your book, I may have gotten it wrong. I don't know if it was Bob Newhart or the Mary Tyler Moore show, but you would sit in the back row of the, um, Mm. the studio and then inch your way forward with the confidence that was building within you. And for me, I found that to be on the other side of the camera as an actor, that that camera's panning in on the person, the more you find the confidence and that stillness and that honesty. And I thought, how amazing. Does he also look at his life in that way from kind of the outside perspective and then focusing in on something? 
Um, maybe subconsciously. I, I, I was, uh, and I think I talk about, uh, talk about it in my book. I was a son of a, 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 a legend on Broadway. So it was daunting for me to even think about going into the theater. And so I was a government major at Oberlin College. And I, when I graduated, the Vietnam War was happening. So uh, I, I didn't want to participate in that. So I went to Yale School of Drama, drama for uh, three years. Hmm. Eventually, I got out and I had to take a physical, which I flunked because I was too funny. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I had a directing course with a man named Nico Sakharopoulos, who started the Williamstown Theater. And I kind of uh, opened my eyes to what my dad did, you know, and watching him when I was a kid with my sister, when we were trundled to, to rehearsals before we'd have dinner with my dad. So things started to click. So I went into stage managing, but I went into stage managing because I, I, I had to get a job. I didn't have any aspirations to be a director or an actor or a writer or anything like that. I just, you know, I wanted to get a job. So I literally, the first job I had in theater was I drove a truck for Goober Ford and Gross. Goober Ford and Gross were the musical tents that used to have two shows, musicals in the summer. And mm -hmm. they would rotate. There were nine musicals. They would rotate. And I would load the scenery into the truck and drive it to the next venue. And then I would... Oh. Have the, the, there were apprentices there, and I would teach them how to move the furniture up and down the aisle for the for the show. So, and then I, you know, I got kind of got into stage managing, and then I got I got kind of got into directing. Uh, uh, in in stock, I ran a theater in San Diego for uh, two years. A star, you know, we had uh, uh, Marjorie Lord in uh, Forty Carrots, and Joanne Worley in Goodbye Charlie, and <laughs> James Drury, and you know, we so we had. I was doing that, but I had never, I, I didn't have any aspirations to do anything else. And then I was directing Joan Fontaine in 40 Carats in Wallingford, Connecticut. <laughs> and I turned on the television, there was a Mary Tyler Moore show. So I saw they were doing 25 minutes of a stage play in a week. And I was doing two hours of a stage play in a week. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote her a letter. So that's the major initiative in my life. That's the literally it's the only time I was had any kind of. Uh, I was aggressive about my career because yeah. I thought I could make it was not something I want. I aspired to do. I thought I could do that. Uh, I didn't dream of it when I was a kid, but I thought I could bring my craft to that particular show. So your imagery about me moving from the back down to the front. Uh, I guess you can look at it that way through all the stage plays. I kept moving down. And then when I did eventually step onto the stage uh, on the Newhart show to talk to the director, I guess that was that was the time that uh, my uh, non-dream became a dream. Mm. You knew you had the goods, though. You knew you could bring. I what? didn't know. I really? didn't know. No, because I was doing scripted stuff that had been done before. And it's hard to put your stink on, on, you know, it's, I did never too late and the odd couple and Plaza suite, all the Neil Simon shows. Mm -hmm. I could buy Charlie. I did. I did prisoner of second Avenue with Van Johnson. Mm. My God, I had dinner with him. He took me to dinner before because we wanted to meet each other before we did it. And <laughs> the check came and Van looked at it and said at the top of his lungs for what? <laughs> <laughs> I was so, I, you know, I was just, 
<laughs> typical actor. But so, but when then when I got to do the Mary Tyler Moore show, it cha- changed because the writers were alive and they mm. were there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had to play by the rules of that show because I was a pitcher from New York who, you know, my credits were not that great. But I had to play by the rules of the show and contribute where I could contribute and not, you know, have incredible deference to the that wonderful cast mm-hmm. and deference to the writers. And I the first show was uh, not a great script, a horrible script. And I did a- anything I could to try to make it better, including invoking a check off in the last scene uh, on my way to shoot the show at 730. I, 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 I walked by Mary's trailer. And she came out and said to me, we feel our investment in you has worked out. Hmm. And I was. That's a huge compliment. uh, I was high as a kite, you know, not before it, after. it, Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it it was, you know, and then, you know, the the Mary Tyler Moore company had four or five other shows. So I got a chance to I went over to direct Newhart and the Paul Sancho and Rhoda and Bob Crane and. so my career was was started. And then yeah. Taxi was the thing that you stepped into and created on your own, right? That was your first. I didn't create it. It was created by, you know, I was the resident director on it. It was, okay. uh, it was created by Jim Brooks and uh, Stan Daniels and Ed Weinberger and Dave Davis. And they were from MTM. So they knew me and I was incredibly flattered that they uh, that they hired me to do the show. But it was the most difficult show I've ever done. It was a huge set. I had to use four cameras, four film cameras instead of three film cameras. Mm. And I had an interplanetary cast. So it was it was really difficult for me because I had no I didn't have my cojones yet. I didn't get my cojones till cheers. That whole cast, Taxi's whole cast was theater actors, theater actors, one boxer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Tony. Sure. And and one comedian. Right, right, right. Must have been a trip working with him. Andy Kaufman. He was the nicest human being in the world. Oh, that's so great to hear. I know he gets a bad rep, but he was the nicest human being in the world. Uh, a, a, a Jewish kid from Great Neck, Long Island, who had ideas that nobody else had. He wanted to perform. You know, he had an alter ego named Tony Clifton. There's the incident on Taxi of the tone when we had to cast Tony Clifton in the show. Mm-hmm. He was a busboy at Greenblatt's, which is a delicatessen in Hollywood. He would do concerts where he would wrestle women. He would also <laughs> come out on stage and start reading Gone with the Wind until <laughs> you laughed. So he was a performance artist. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the bravest one I've ever seen, a little like Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah. Yes. And uh, but Andy was, you know, it was great to work with him. He was sweet and nice and uh, um, really funny. James, you've worked on both coasts. Do you find that there is a, a, a difference in sensibilities? No, I don't think no, not really. No. no. Uh, I would have loved to shot, uh, you know, to shoot New York City. We, we, uh, I, I did a movie with Robin Penny called, called More Than Friends when they were Meathead and Laverne, mm-hmm. and uh, we I, we shot a lot in New York City, which was, which was you know great. We're outdoors. It was not. It was a single camera show, but uh, you know, I I was born in L.A., but I grew up in New York, and 
New York's in my blood and I miss it. As Jackie Gleason said, when you leave New York, you're camping out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also, although the set from Friends, I absolutely loved. Um, but when I went to New York to find my apartment, I was very disappointed that those those pieces of real estate don't really exist for the no, unemployed waitress. No, 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 no. one gets a balcony. Like, I'm and sorry, is this living- the toilet and the bath in the kitchen? This is not the way Monica lived. This is I not- know. Uh, Martin David De- Martin David had to deal with that for a long time. Oh my gosh, I, their I, view I, alone, those floor to ceiling windows. Yeah, uh, honestly. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> crushed a lot of dreams with that it one. Really, it really, really <laughs> did. Well, the but, taxi garage looked dirty and messy. So that's true. You know, that's true. Not to go back, but did do you know that they even sell merchandise now, little picture frames that you can put around your peephole in your door mm-hmm. that mimics oh, exactly God. what was yeah. That's actually swag from your show that sells off the shelves still to this day. And that's another thing, the longevity, the endurance. Mm -hmm. So they're streaming now and there's so many other generations that the storylines and the the characters are so universal. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though it feels like from the nineties, it's not, it's a different fashion, Mm -hmm. but the themes are still so to this day. Exactly right. Yeah, that's it's what I was saying. Can watch it with my son. And it's something all these years later, we can still connect on it and both be laughing at. It's a tribute to the writing. I did 15 friends. I did uh, like the first four or five and a couple more in the first year. And then I did selected episodes. I did uh, the prom video, which everybody loves. Oh, sure. And uh, the, the show is eternal. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. It's going to go on forever and ever. And it's something about how it seduces kids to watch it, yeah. you know, and and it took it was a brilliant written show from the first year until the end. And the actors were funny and gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And it never the writing never got the recognition it deserved until the mm-hmm. ninth year when it won best best comedy at the Emmys. But that show was brilliantly written from day one, had three stories in every show Mm -hmm. and was crafted uh, with the greatest skill. Was their writer's room pretty consistent or did they have different writers come in and out? Well, David and Marta were around all All the time, all the time. So they were the guiding forces. And, you know, they had a couple who stayed. But when you're on a hit show as a uh, as a, a writer under the head writers, People start, uh, networks start uh, sniffing you out as potentially people who can do their own show uh-huh. because you're on a hit show. And so a lot of them left to do their own thing. But uh, Marta and David stayed with the show the entire time. Once you find that that voice and once you find a director that understands the tone as an audience member, there's real comfort in that. You know, I find that a lot of the one hour dramas, that it's a revolving door of different directors and understandably so. Um, But sometimes the tone or the cinematography is so different that you're like, oh, this isn't the show that I'm used to. This isn't the show that I'm hungry for every week. It looks Mm -hmm. different. It feels different. Well, if you're the resident director on a show, there's a shorthand that develops over time. So you don't have to deal with 
the peccadillos of the director or the peccadillos of the cast. The director knows what those peccadillos are, Mm -hmm. the resident director. A new director coming in, it becomes more difficult because the actors tend to test director. And Mm -hmm. so your time is, is, there's a lot of time wasted with this, you know, kind of is, do they know what they're doing and stuff like that. And, and a director who comes in has to understand you have to play by the rules of the show and not, you know, say we're doing it my way because mm-hmm. the cast knows the right way to do it. That was when I went on the Mary Tyler Moore show, that was exactly my frame of mind. So it helps when you have a resident director. Uh, it because it, it, the shorthand is easier. The days are shorter. Uh, uh, it just, it just becomes a, a more fluid process. The trust is there. Yeah. yeah. I remember hearing a great story when, um, after the first episode of friends aired or just before it aired, you took the whole cast to Las Vegas. Cause you knew it was going to be the last time that they would be anonymous anywhere that they went. Yeah. About, I did, I think the first three or four friends and, uh, I knew from the pilot and from the, the next three episodes that when the audiences loved this show, mm-hmm. they, lo- they loved it. They loved the characters. They loved the writing. They loved the humor. So I knew that there was something special about the show. So I went to Warner Brothers and I asked them for their, their, their the corporate jet because I wanted to take the six kids to Vegas to bond further and to let them know that, you know, I couldn't, cont- I, I, I could do infrequent shows, but I couldn't continue to do the series because I had my own production company and a couple of shows on the air and I had to do those. So I took them to uh, Spago in Caesar's Palace and I sat them down at a table and uh, I, I literally said to them, this is your last shot at anonymity. You're going to you're here at dinner and then we're going to gamble after you're going to sit there at a, at a craps table or a blackjack table and nobody is going to know who the hell you are. Mm. But once this show gets on the air, you will never be able to walk into a casino again and not be mobbed or a restaurant. And I was prophetic. I, you know, I, I just had a hint that that was going to happen. And, and it happened. What was their reaction when you said that? Did they believe you or did they think, oh, no way? Or what did they do? Um, I think there was some belief because I came, I came with a, you know, a pistol and a badge. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I think that, you know, they knew what I had done before. And uh, uh, I think they believed me a little bit, but I don't think they, even I knew how popular the show would be. Hmm. Do you keep in touch with any or all? Of I actors? do. I do. I, uh, I, I talk to Jen frequently and I talk to Schwimmer. And when I was on my book tour, Schwimmer interviewed me at the Y. <laughs> he, ah. he to, uh, and I see LeBlanc because I did his show, Man With a Plan. I did a lot of episodes on that show. And I see Lisa because I knew Lisa from Lisa was on the Cheers. She was. Uh, oh, she was. Yeah, she played. Uh, Woody was in a local acting company. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, I don't see a lot of Matthew. And uh, I occasionally when I go to Jen's house, I'll see Courtney. 
Do you think that you'll be doing any any more in front of a live studio, Wanda? That, that that series that they were doing, and if you could pick one to do, what would you do? I uh, I did uh, I did the first one, which was All in the Family and the Jeffersons. The second one I couldn't do because it was uh, Final Will and Grace episode. Okay, so I couldn't do it. And then I did the third one, which was Facts of Life and Different Strokes. Mm. They're talking about doing Maud now. <gasps> uh, the abortion oh. episode. Yes. You know, who would who would play Maud? B. B. We get B. Arthur. Just zoom her from her. Uh, <laughs> just raise her. Is she on ice? And we don't, this is not tactful at all, y'all. Hey, in your book, you also say that you're a big crier. What's the one instant on set or a scene or an episode that made you cry the absolute hardest? The last night of Cheers, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the final episode. Uh, There's pictures in the book of uh, uh, me hugging Teddy. Uh, You just see us from the side Mm -hmm. and uh, you don't see the tears. And there's another one of me hugging my uh, one of my middle daughters, Maggie, who's crying because I'm crying. And uh, yeah, I but I if I get an accolade, I tend to weep. And uh, it's just how my emotions come out. Uh, You know, there's probably somewhere deep inside of me that there's there's a softy gene. Yeah, Well, you were uh, raised around theater folk. Yeah. Those emotions, (laughs) those emotions are there. I also, I want to know, you say there's 39 jokes in the world and that there's a hundred types of expressions. Are these numbers arbitrary or is it, is that literally uh, uh, a tested number somewhere? No, that's, that's arbitrary. Okay. But I think okay. uh, jo- all jokes are derivative. Uh, you know, you have to find, uh, you know, you find a new way to do a joke. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I, I use that example of, um, I did a pilot called Bumpers, and uh, Jim Brooks helped out on it. Jim Brooks is one of the great comedy writers in the world. Mm-hmm. And we had a scene where Richard Mazur, who played the lead, goes to a bar, and he's got a bully there. And the bully is berating him. Richard says, can I buy you a beer? And the bully says, sure. And uh, uh, he buys him a beer. And, you know, the old joke, as as he's about to drink it, you say, uh, what time is it? So he looks at his watch and pours the beer on. Him. Mm-hmm. And Jim said, let's do a derivative of that joke. Let's mm-hmm. not do that. Let's have the bully say, I'm sure you bought me this beer. And you were going to say, you're going to ask me to tell what time it is. <laughs> so, the- <laughs> so I I use that as an example of, you know, there you 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 have in your head as a comic or a comic director or comic writer you have movie references you have shows you've seen sitcoms you've seen and everything is a different kind of uh spin on what what's in your head because you try to you try to make it look different and if you can make it look different you're a really good writer Yeah. Nowadays, with all the streaming and the just the amount of content, I don't know how much you actually have the time to watch, but is there a show that you look at and say, wow, that's crafted, that's casted, mm. it's produced beautifully, that one's done right from soup to nuts? Uh, well, yeah. My favorite show is Breaking Bad. Oh, gosh. That, oh, my God. Yeah. That's yeah. some shit I could have never thought of. 
Every episode is a cliffhanger. Every yeah. episode feels like a season cliffhanger to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then Shameless. Uh, another oh, show. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. I haven't oh, seen that one. It's just, okay. it's just, you can't believe what they do. I mean, those are the dramas. And then I love Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. You and, know, there's, there's another one called Bear with the, with the kid from Shameless, the son. And it's a, he's a chef. And it is so realistic that when I watch it, I literally have like flashbacks to being in the kitchen of Cheers. It's so realistic. It's so well done. It's the same, you'd probably really love it. It's that same feel as Shameless. It's really great. Really yeah, great. Yeah. I'll, I'll, somebody else recommended it. I'll look at it. And so for comedies, uh, Curb, and then I love the Connors. Because, oh, I haven't watched that one yeah, either. I haven't okay. either. Because they have existed without their star, mm. and they still do that conversational humor. Mm. They, they don't hit the jokes. It's all underplayed from Goodman to uh, Sarah Gilbert. Mm. It's all underplayed, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed on how, on how good that, that show is. It's just crazy. I'm going to tell every single person. Uh, James Burroughs r- recommended this show to me. <laughs> <laughs> you should watch this show. But did you see my Mets shirt? This. What? Well, I know you're a Yankees fan, no, and no, I, I don't no. want to poke the bear. Oh. I'm just saying we've got oh, a really I, I, good team this year, James. Like uh, it could happen. Da, ba, 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 ba. Don't do that to me. It's, it I'm could happen. A, I'm going to put a kin of horror on it. <laughs> Look, as a Mets and Jets fan, do you understand how much hope I start every season and how depressed we are at the end of every season? Well, you're Give too young this. to remember the Mets. Uh, their accolades. No, that's true. Yeah, it's 69, true. 73, 69 World Series. Wow. It was amazing. Yeah. Funny. I'm not a sports fan at all. I had a job once where um, I worked at the Celtics, like in the old Boston oh, yeah. Garden, the real oh, sure. Boston Garden before it was all redone. And my job was I would sit down right on the on the court and I would queue up the commercials and the interviews and this and that. And I, I hated my job because I wanted nothing to do with sports. And my brother, this was during like Larry Bird, like this was, these were the days, right? And my brother said he was watching one of those um, videos, like the best of Larry Bird videos. And he said, and there it is. And the court, the people are screaming and everybody's on their feet and the camera follows Larry Bird down. And there you are at the table like this. Just surly and boring. Flipping through a Vogue. I'm like, this is so boring. He's like, I wanted to climb through the television and choke you. (laughs) I just am not a sports fan. I couldn't. You're from Boston. I know. I I don't fit in. I don't fit in. Wow. I'm really a New Yorker. And that's the the, is the uh are the dinner theater still there? The, the one in Framingham and uh, no. Randolph and Saugus? Nope. Oh, my God. But I used to go to them as a kid with my mom. My mom would take me to those dinner theaters. Chateau DeVille dinner theaters. Yeah. Yeah. Who doesn't want to have dessert while someone's singing an 11 o'clock number? What's wrong with you people? <laughs> and now it's time for the five questions. If you were any sort of pizza, would you be a, a deep dish, Chicago? Would you be thin crust or thick crust? And what would be on your pizza, James? I'd be uh, deep dish and uh, pepperoni. Mm-hmm. Good. If you could have any question answered, what would it be? What's beyond the stars? Mm. 
All right. So you've been arrested. We call your family and friends as to why you might be arrested. What would they say was the crime? Farting. <laughs> They're that bad? They're criminal? Uh, what would they say is the crime? Uh, probably speeding. Okay. Mm. Okay. If I were to walk into your closet, would there be anything in there that you will never get rid of something that's so precious you'll never let it go uh, my old nikes mm. did you direct in the nikes uh, well actually actually no I, I want to amend that my old uh george's living shoes george's living shoes are shoes molded to your feet that uh. my mentor jay sandrich when I was doing, when I started on a Mary Tyler Moore show, he had these shoes. I went to get them, and I wore them for about forty-five years, and they don't function anymore. So they're in my closet, and nobody's ever going to take them. But did they save your knees and your back from all that standing yes. day in and day out? Yeah, because it's concrete floors on the sta- on the yeah. on the sound stages. All right, this is the toughest one. If you were a nail polish color, what would that color be? And what's the cheeky little name of that nail polish? Oh, my God. (laughs) If I was a nail polish color. And then what's the cheeky name? You know how they have those ridiculous names? Maybe you don't. I don't. Look, if this shows up in another pilot or something, (laughs) I want we want a little credit. I don't know. And uh, my wife never tells me the names of the. I, I, uh, um, give me a color. Just give us a color that I would want to be, uh, beige. Oh, beige. (laughs) You are so not beige. Okay. We'll have to think of a A title for that. Yeah. Yeah. Betty beige. How about beige ain't funny. Yeah. (laughs) Beige ain't funny. Beige ain't funny. funny. Beige ain't funny. (laughs) But you are, we are grateful. Yes, and I love your book. I, I've I've listened to it twice through already. Oh my God, it's you heard fantastic. My, uh, my high nasal squeal. <laughs> I have to oh ask. My God, did you want to? Not that there's anything wrong with your voice. Did you want to read it? Were you encouraged to read it? Because you could have got any actor. And I thought this is so interesting. I love that the the writer of the book, not being an actor, is reading his own words. I uh, it was presented to me, and I and I said no. And then they sent me a number of actors, not reading my book, but reading other books. Mm -hmm. And I said, wow, that doesn't, that's not going to sound good. And then my co-writer told me that Mel Brooks read his book. Mm. So I decided to read me. And it was, it was tough. It was five days. It was my voice. Even (laughs) though I was, I was in the Metropolitan Opera Voice Chorus. Yes. So, uh, you know, so I had some experience singing on stage. Uh, but uh, the voice left me right after I was 16. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't well, do it. So you have, I did, skills. I did have a good time doing my book. Well, yeah. it's, it's really a wonderful book. It's so fun. There's so many great stories and it's just such a, it's such a great thing to listen to. I loved it. Yep. I appreciate that. And yes. thank you for all that you've given entertainment and culture truly. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Coming up next, what struck a chord with us right after this break? Y'all, Stages is now sponsored by BetterHelp, and I couldn't be more excited because I love therapy. So I encourage you, if you've had a tough year and a half, 
<laughs> Why don't you give them a shot? You can find a therapist that you can connect with. Their resource is thousands of therapists, well-trained and experienced. You can keep looking until you find someone that you click with. They have customized online therapy. They do offer videos, but they also offer phone and live chat sessions. So you don't even have to be seen. You can only be heard. What are you waiting for? Go to BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P dot com slash stages. And for our cast members, you get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash stages. Go, go, go. Go find your healing. Go find your happy. Stages podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P. Oh, how Look, fun. How many times did I want to say Jimmy Burroughs? But there, I, I don't know him well enough to call him Jimmy, but he is a Jimmy. Yeah. And I desperately wanted that. Do you think we're friends now? Do, I maybe? think we are. I think we're okay. best friends now. Yeah. Oh, all right. She took it to best friends, Jimmy Burroughs. She yeah, took it to best, best friends. friends now. I mean- Truly, yeah. he, what he's given, yeah, this arts culture, yeah. uh, 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 it's it's you can't measure it. You really, yeah. really can't. Yep, yep. And you wrote a letter, and he said yes. That's yeah. And I thought that was uh, such a great lesson, you know, to to show your kid. Like my son seriously was like, "That guy's coming on your show." <laughs> I said, "Yeah." And I don't get how that happened. And I said, "You know what, babe? I asked." See what happens when you prepare for something and then you ask for what you want. That's right. And that's what, that's what the rest of your life can be, you know, just decide. And so it was funny, but you know, the, the thing, the thing is like how cheers was so in the, in the zeitgeist, it was everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I tell you, when I worked there, there were lines down the block around the corner. I made a gazillion dollars waitressing there and had the best time. I worked with such fun people and it was just such a blast. It's like the best college job. But to me, I don't ever recall a TV show having a following like that before cheers. I mean, I was thinking like maybe happy days, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess there was sort of screaming fans for happy days, but cheers to me was sort of the first one that it really was everywhere. developed. It was everywhere. It was everywhere. Right. Everywhere. And if you, you know, that whole saying, they may not say it anymore, but like the water cooler chat, you know, you'd go back to work. Everybody would gather around in that communal space and talk about the talk episode. About what happened. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. 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 And if you didn't know what happened, you were on the out and out because there were no, you know, recording or streaming. So you had to see it in the moment yeah. and that made it all the more exciting, you yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, when you think about classic TV, it, it's, it's Jimmy Burroughs and Norman Lear. They, they are American TV. That's, they really are. It. They're the classic. Could they you imagine like it. being the creators of Shameless or Breaking Bad and having somebody like James Burroughs say that is done, that is done yeah. to perfection. Yeah. What yeah. a compliment. Well, Breaking Bad is brilliant. It is genius. I know it really is. It makes me feel all of the feelings. And sometimes I'm more exhausted after the episode than I was before, but you know, that means they're doing something right because, um, what a great guy. I, I, there's so many other questions as we always say at the end of the interview, because you don't want to take more than an hour of somebody's time when you know they are so busy and they're giving of that time. But 
could have sat down with him for a good five or six hours and oh, had yeah. follow-up questions. And, yeah. and that's what this book is. Listeners, first of all, there's so much theater the the names of the people that he shared rooms with, writing rooms with, mm-hmm. antidotes with. Mm-hmm. And his father is, like he said, a, a Broadway god, whether he was directing or help mm-hmm. writing. And, and we're talking classics like Guys and Dolls and How to Succeed in Business. Yeah. So um, make sure you either get yourself a, a hard copy or it is on Audible. And those however many hours, 10 or 11 hours listening to him read his own words. It's gold. There's this very funny story though. I have to tell you when I was waitressing at Cheers, because really that show helped me pay for college, paid for my apartment, paid for my my car. I mean, I made a ton of money waitressing there. And, uh, uh, I went to Europe, um, like for a break. And when I was going to visit a friend and I'm sitting on the plane and I'm flying to France for the first time. And the guy sitting next to me, is like, Hey, I think I know you. And I'm thinking, all right, leave Here me Here we go. Let me just yeah, eight Paris, hours of being hit away. on. <laughs> so I was like, no, you don't know me. And I'm reading my book and, and he keeps looking at me and I'm getting uncomfortable. I'm like, oh God, do I need to change seats? Like, just leave me alone. And he goes, oh my God, I know how I know you. And I go, oh, how? Uh-oh. He goes, you were my waitress in Cheers. You whipped a pack of cigarettes at my head, told me to sit down and shut up. <laughs> oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, that, that was definitely me. That was definitely, he was like, oh my God. So I, I would just act like Carla and it was great because I could be totally mean to all my customers. And they were like, oh my God, you're hysterical. And they'd give me all their money. And I was so mean to them, but it was perfect. Sometimes you want to go where everybody right. knows your name. So or funny? they throw like, cigarettes at your head. You whipped a pack <laughs> of cigarettes at my head. And I was like, well, you probably deserved it. Now leave me alone. Let me fly to Paris. Oh my God. It was so funny. I love it. Oh Um, my gosh, Jimmy Burroughs. We are best friends. Thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for this interview. And truly check out this man's book. You're going to want to. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you loved this episode or any of our episodes, please follow, subscribe, and share on all your social media platforms. Go ahead and give us five stars and a review. That helps us a lot. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. Thank you to Allison Arns, our booking agent, Brock Grenfeld, our sound engineer, Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our original music, and Tina Wargo, our social media manager. Stages Podcast is produced and edited by me, Mary Lee Fairbanks, and Stephanie J. Block. And thank you to all of you, our cast members, for listening. We'll see you real soon.